This upcoming Sunday is the Sunday of Joseph of Arimathea and the myrrh-bearing women. Though the story of the women finding Jesus' tomb empty is told by several of the evangelists, I want to narrow in on John's telling of the story. It's only in John's Gospel that Mary mistakes Jesus for a gardener, and it's only in John's Gospel that Jesus tells Mary not to touch him, because he has not yet ascended, note the past tense, to his Father, because he is in the process of ascending, note the present tense. But what does this mean? Why would Jesus say this? Perhaps a clue comes from Jesus' teaching earlier in the Gospel. And perhaps, as we'll discover, it also has to do with eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The bottom line, it isn't the appearance of Jesus to us that saves, but our faith in what has been written by John that saves. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. is risen. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm your host, Father Dustin. As I said in the introduction, the second Sunday after Pascha is dedicated to the myrrh-bearing women and St. Joseph of Arimathea, though St. Joseph often gets forgotten about on this Sunday. Just take a look at the icon and you'll see that there's three women next to the empty tomb while Joseph doesn't appear anywhere in sight. So, with all due respect to St. Joseph, I'm going to pass over him today and focus on the women. At Orthros, we read the story of the Merban women from Luke, that's chapter 24, verses 10 through 12. And in the liturgy, we read the story from Mark, chapter 15, verses 43 through 47, and chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. However, I want to take a look at St. John's Gospel. His telling of the story is a bit different than the others. So here's John chapter 20, verses 3 through 18, in David Bentley Hart's translation, with a few edits for length. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and came to the tomb, but he did not enter. And he sees the winding sheets lying there, and the kerchief that had been on his head not lying there with the sheets, but apart, folded up in a place of its own. So the disciples went away home again. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. As she was weeping, then she bent down into the tomb and sees two angels in white sitting there, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say to her, Madam, why are you weeping? She says to them, They took away my Lord, and I do not know where they put him. Saying these things, she turned back around and sees Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus says to her, Madam, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? She, thinking that he is the gardener, says to him, My Lord, if you have carried him off, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. Jesus says to her, Mary. 
Turning, she says to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus says to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary the Magdalene comes to the disciples announcing, I have seen the Lord, as well as the things he told her. What's unique about John's telling of the story is this interaction between Mary and Jesus. At first, she believes Jesus to be a gardener. This may seem like a historical detail. If Jesus' tomb is the garden tomb, then of course, a person found in that vicinity might be the one who cares for the garden. But remember, the resurrection is about new life. It's about new creation, as St. Paul famously put it at the end of Galatians. The idea of creation and garden should take us back to the very beginning, to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve heard God walking in this garden. So the comment about Mary mistaking Jesus as a gardener has greater implications than just historical details. It's a reference to paradise, the Garden of Eden. Perhaps it's a way of saying that in the resurrection, we will again find ourselves in the garden that God planted for humanity, the garden we were called to care for, the garden we were asked to cultivate over the entire earth. Or you can think of it as another citation that John's Gospel has a high Christology. You see, some scholars believe that the earliest Christians didn't think Jesus was divine. Only after several centuries of theological debate did people start to call Jesus God. At least this is what these academics are teaching. And according to them, this idea that Jesus evolves into God is culminated in the ecumenical councils. Well, I'm not convinced by this argument. In contrast to this idea, I believe that St. Paul and the Evangelists do have a high Christology. That is, already in the first century, Jesus is seen as divine, and this passage is proof of that. If the original gardener was God, walking in the Garden of Eden, to mistake Jesus as a gardener now would be to identify Jesus as the Lord who walked with Adam and Eve. It would be a recognition of a divine Jesus, a mixing of identities, that which we attribute to Yahweh, such as being the gardener in the Garden of Eden, we can attribute to Jesus, the gardener in this new paradise. Or in other words, Jesus is light of light, true God of true God. Nonetheless, the conversation continues. Jesus ends up telling Mary, Do not cling to me. What does this mean? Why can't Mary cling to Jesus? In Greek, it's mimu aptu, which can also mean, don't touch me. But in this case, I think cling is a better understanding. But why? I think the answer comes from what Jesus says next. Do not cling for me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and tell them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. So what does ascending have to do with clinging? Well, the short of it is this. Then I'll walk you through it step by step. That which gives life isn't the flesh, 
but it's the Spirit. Since Jesus had been bodily resurrected, he was again in the flesh, of some sort, resurrected flesh. What Jesus doesn't want is for people to cling to the vision of the resurrection. Instead, they must trust the words, the story of his resurrection as found in the gospel. Once he's ascended, he will no longer be walking around in the flesh, so people will have no choice but to be led by the Spirit, to believe based on what's written, the teaching as recorded by John and the other evangelists. Jesus' words to Mary is a foretaste of how the world will come to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. It's by the proclamation of the gospel, not a video recording of it. After all, Jesus will later say, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Okay, now you've heard the short of it. Let's go back and look at all of this in a bit of detail. I'm going to take you all the way back to the beginning of John chapter 6. This chapter starts with Jesus feeding the 5,000. Many of us mistake this feeding as a simple miracle. Here's how the story starts. Raising his eyes, therefore, and seeing a large crowd approaching him, Jesus says to Philip, Where might we buy loaves of bread so that they might eat? But this he said to test him, for he knew what he was about to do. Now, as if to offer a solution, Andrew notices a boy and says to Jesus, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two dried fish. But what is that among so many? So Jesus takes these five loaves and two fish and distributes them to the 5,000 people. In the end, they all have enough to eat. Most of us probably think John is telling us about a miracle, a multiplication of actual bread and fish. But is he? The feeding of the 5,000, as well as the feeding of the 4,000, is told by some of the other evangelists. But Matthew gives us some insight into what this story is really about. Here's Matthew 16, 5-12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch out, and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They said to one another, Is it because we have brought no bread? And becoming aware of it, Jesus said, You of little faith, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the five thousand? Or how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread. Let me say that verse again. How could you fail to perceive that I was not speaking about bread? Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he had not told them to beware of the yeast of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, the bread is a symbol for the teaching God's law. I think John is doing the same thing. The evidence is in the number of loaves of bread there are. Five, the same number of books that are in the Torah, the law of Moses, the same number of books that are in the teaching. 
As many of the church fathers have recognized when they wrote about these passages, the feeding of the 5,000 is really about Jesus' teaching to the people, and it's the teaching that feeds them. It's the teaching that gives them life. Why do I mention this? I mention this to show that we have to think about the spiritual meaning of these stories. It isn't just a news report. Here's what happened. The stories the evangelists tell us are a theological reflection. It's a teaching that's supposed to draw us closer to God. The feeding of the 5,000 and understanding it properly prepares us for what comes next in John chapter 6. And here's an edited version of that. Jesus answered them and said, Amen, amen. I tell you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were fully filled. Do not labor for perishable food, but for the food that abides unto life in the age, which the Son of Man will give you, for God has placed a seal on this one. Amen, amen, I tell you, Moses has not given you the bread from heaven, but rather my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one descending out of heaven and imparting life to the cosmos. Amen, amen, I tell you, the one who has faith has life in the age. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the desert and died. This is the bread descending out of heaven, so that one might eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that has descended out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live throughout the age. And the bread I shall give for the life of the cosmos is my flesh. Amen, amen, I tell you, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in you. Whoever feeds upon my flesh and drinks my blood has life in the age, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds upon my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. This causes you to falter? If then you see the Son of Man ascending to where he originally was, it is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no worth. The words I have spoken to you are the Spirit and are life. Let me say that again. The words I have spoken to you are Spirit and are life. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go away? You have the words of life in the age. We have both trusted and known that you are the Holy One of God. So for those who want to look that up, that's John chapter 6, verses 26 through 27, 32 through 33, 47 through 51, 53 through 56, 61 through 63, 68 through 69. Okay, so I shortened it for you. Feel free to go and read all of chapter 6, but these are the important parts that I want to draw your attention to. Here, Jesus obviously says that he is the bread of life, and unless one eats of his flesh and drinks of his blood, that one won't have eternal life. But considering our conversation about the feeding of the 5,000, we know that Jesus wasn't talking about bread. So we have to ask, what is he talking about? This passage is used by a lot of people to talk about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, or the importance of the Eucharist. But as you can see, Jesus isn't talking about that. Now, this isn't to deny the doctrine of real presence. I'm just saying, here in John chapter 6, that's not what this is about. The real bread and blood 
that Jesus offers us in chapter 6 for food is the teaching, God's instruction, the law. As he says, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no worth. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And then Peter confirms that Jesus isn't talking about the Eucharist or actual bread, but rather the instruction. He says, you have the words of life in the age. FYI, it's interesting to note that there's no Eucharist in John's Gospel. He washes the disciples' feet, gives an extended sermon, and off they go. That's it. But anyway, what Jesus is doing in John 6 is comparing the law of Moses, symbolized by the manna in the desert, with the Gospel, which is now being proclaimed by Jesus. Moses' law was not able to give life, but Jesus' instruction can. This is the difference. Now, the connection to the myrrh-bearing women, and specifically the conversation with Mary in the garden, is this line. This causes you to falter? If then you see the Son of Man ascending to where he originally was? This, in turn, is the prompt that allows Jesus to confirm he's talking about his teaching, what John is writing down rather than anything visual. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no worth. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So this is exactly why Jesus tells Mary not to cling to him. Don't cling to the vision of the risen Christ. Don't worry about what you see. Rather, what Jesus wants is for Mary to go and proclaim the words of the resurrection to the disciples, and through these words, they should believe and find salvation. This is emphasized by the story of Doubting Thomas, which ends with Jesus saying, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet come to believe. And then John adds, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. And as if this isn't enough, Jesus, in another post-resurrection appearance, confronts Peter and says to him, Feed my lambs, and then feed my flocks. Remember, feeding means to teach, give people the instruction. And then finally, St. John's Gospel ends with these words. These are the very last verses of the Gospel. This is the disciple who testifies concerning these things, and who has written these things And we know that his testimony is true. And there are many other things that Jesus also did, which were they written down one by one, I think the cosmos itself would not contain the books that could be written. So in summary, to understand the story of the myrrh-bearing women in John, you have to understand that Jesus emphasizes over and over again that what gives life are his words, the written account of the death and resurrection of the word. We know that John emphasizes the written account of Christ through the feeding of the 5,000 and his sermon about eating his flesh and blood. By the time Mary encounters the gardener, we as the listeners are primed not to cling to the physical appearance of Christ. We are primed to believe because of the accounts we have heard proclaimed. But Mary isn't. Jesus has to tell her not to cling to him but to begin the proclamation of Jesus' resurrection by telling it to his disciples. 
From there, it's the words that were written that end up causing people to believe. It's the words of Jesus' teaching that bring life to the world. After all, Jesus has ascended, so he is no longer walking around. So if we don't believe the account, we have nothing to see. Until next week, God bless.